Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Carl Ostendorp is an abstract painter based in upstate New York. He's had over 33 solo national and international museum and gallery exhibitions, and more than 170 group exhibitions. Recent exhibitions include his just completed show at Elizabeth D Gallery in Harlem, Everything Falls Faster Than an Anvil at Pace Gallery in London, and Pop Abstractions at Garth Greenham Gallery in Friedrichs and Fraser in New York City. Carl has a long history of not only showing his work, but curating excellent exhibitions. He taught at NYU, Tyler, Rutgers, SVA, and the Cooper Union prior to his 14 years at the helm of the Graduate Studies Program at Cornell University. Carl received his BFA from Boston University and his MFA from Yale University. I met up with Carl at Elizabeth D. Gallery on the last day of his show to talk about his past days in New York City, his curated shows, the role of humor in painting, and a bit of soul jazz. Here's our conversation. When I got to the city, when I moved you know, out of school to the city, that was they were like the cool guys. Yeah. So it was like um, I'm showing in the same gallery as the people that right. you know. Nice little connection with yeah, that, those great. people. Yeah. How did she pull that off? Um, track people down. Yeah. You know, um, she was talking to a lot of people. I mean, she and I would have conversations. So we're, you know, every once in a while about shows I'd seen. You know, way back then. Yeah. So it was kind of great. It's like this weird, because um, it's pre, you know, it's pre-internet era. Yeah. It's like that stuff didn't really get fully documented, and it's got so much to do with what happened in the '90s, and it's like this big missing chip or something. Yeah, like you can go back and find things that happened that were just not really documented. You could flesh them out. Yeah. Whereas now I feel like even if you find something, like a genre or some group of people doing something, mm-hmm. it's at least going to be documented online. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're going to find information. Yeah, and 99 of, 99% of the people that know about it mm-hmm. know about it because of the documentation. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's funny. I just um, found out about Chicago footwork. Do you know about this Mm-mm. genre of music? No. It's kind of like it's post-house Chicago I guess it's just beat, you know, it's beats and it's like these cut clips, you know, like clips of little repetitive clips of samples. That, it, So it's kind of really rhythmic and kind of faster, but it's made for a certain kind of dancing. But uh-huh. I, I guess it's just a, a new version of house music. But there's this incredible, so I, I've heard about it and I love the term Chicago footwork. Yeah. It's just like alluring to me. Yeah. I was like, why do I not know about this? How did I not... Because these, is it just I'm getting old or like this was an older genre? And it's fairly recent. So I Googled it. And then there's a YouTube video of the dance that happens where it's kind of like a thin, almost like, remember the Soul Train? Yeah, yeah. Like videos and, and they would come yeah, down the line. Every Saturday morning. Did they call it the line or something? It was the one uh, where they would all dance down the line and then yeah, circle around. I don't know, somehow I always think it's the train. The train, It's okay. not the train. Yeah, yeah. But that sort of thing, but it's tighter and it's... Um, there's people just facing each other, basically like almost face to face. And yeah. the guy or girl in the middle like does this dance and it's super fast footwork stuff. That uh-huh. It's just, it's amazing. Uh-huh. It's like, how do I not know about this? Yeah. You know, whereas back in the day, like genres like that could have existed and there's, it's almost like now there's a mythology to it because you, you didn't experience it and you can't go online and see videos of that stuff happening. Right. Or I don't know, there's something that happens and that leads me to what I was thinking about coming here today was I remember when I was in undergraduate school, um, there was an, I think it was an art in America in the bathroom of the apartment that I shared with another artist. And um, John Wesley was on the cover. Mm-hmm. And I was unfamiliar with his work. I didn't know anything about it. And it was like one of those 
dogwood is it dogwood or dagwood or dagwood. yeah dagwood it was like an image of that I was like what is this and I would just see it there all the time and then I eventually I would I read the article mm-hmm. and um, it was just I was it was really interesting to me because I was unfamiliar with it and then it, when I saw I think was your first show or the first show that I saw which I think was at Elizabeth's Gallery in Chelsea mm-hmm. was it 2001 does that sound right yeah 2000 I think I think that was the first show I've I saw in person of your work uh-huh. and it gave me that feeling of like when I saw the Wesley of oh, this feels like something that is in my vernacular like I grew up watching Bugs Bunny yeah and Chuck Jones was like my hero yeah yeah <laughs> and I just immediately felt like wow this is I feel like this might be tapping into that aesthetic and I don't know much that looks like this stuff hmm. so how did you come to that kind of thing well aesthetic um i mean i guess my first show was like 89 so there's a kind of an arc before you got to it but um it's funny you bring up wesley wesley was huge for me um i actually kind of finagled a way to get to um to meet him at one point you know um early on or like later yeah like 90 well 93 i was doing the show in california with dan weinberg and um he had this huge space on colorado's before he moved Mm -hmm. um up to san francisco and um i was doing these foam urethane paintings that's actually one of them that was in that show over there on the wall um, and he had three sort of main gallery spaces. Uh, two were really big and one was kind of smaller. And I was like, um, really up for doing the show and everything, but let's take the third space and do a show of works on paper of people's work I'm really into. And I'd been um, I'd been stopping at Fiction Nonfiction Gallery. Remember mm-hmm. that place? Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, they would pull out like the new Wesleys. And I, I had this idea that uh, the, the collector Thomas Amon, I guess his past, and Donald Judd were the two people that were keeping Wesley going. Yeah. Those were the two people that were buying his work. And uh, Jose would pull out the new Wesleys when they came in. I was just like crazy about his work. I'd seen it in a Lucy Lepard like pop art book. It was a it was an image of a black and white image of um, two squirrels fucking, <laughs> and they were wearing wedding rings, and uh-huh. it totally blew, like, your mind. blew my mind. <laughs> um, so I told Dan Weinberg, let's do the show of works on paper. And we had like a Bill Copley and we had an Art Schwager and, and I said, let's get, you know, let's get Wesley. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, isn't Wesley British? And I'm like, no, he's, a, he's like American. And then he was like, isn't Wesley dead? And I was like, no, no, he's like. Still doing it. Yeah, he's still doing it. Um, and so he got this Wesley and I sold some paintings out of that show. And instead of taking the cash, I got the Wesley. I had, you know, I, I bought the Wesley instead. Smart. Um, it was beautiful gouache of like sweet pea sitting on a cloud like a bodhisattva. Yeah. You know, really uh, beautiful. Um, and uh, at one point, um, and I guess the next thing that happened was Weinberg did a show of Wesley's work, mm-hmm. you know, like a few months later. And then the um, Porticus did a show of works on paper. And then uh, I think the Stadler did a show. And I went to his, I got to a studio in Dumbo. Um, as he was like shipping, you know, packing up all this work, it was sort of a retrospective show. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, those paintings are so mysterious. I thought, I'm finally going to get a chance to get the lowdown on the Wesley paintings, right? right? So I'm. Um, First hand. Yeah, like from, yeah. The, you know, from the source. And so he's, he's got this painting leaning against the wall in the studio, and I'm kind of like nervous, mm-hmm. right? Because he's a hero. And. Um, it's a painting of like a, a, a woman sleeping with a bear, with a, like a white polar bear, and I think it's above it, there's like three sort of heraldic turkeys in a row. And I'm like, T- you know, tell me what this one's about. And he says, well, she's sleeping with a bear and there's like three turkeys. Like that's the <laughs> secret of the painting. Right. So no, it's sort of like, like, yeah, he's just operating on pure, like it comes to him that way and that's yeah. the way it That's it what works. I wanted to paint. Yeah. Yeah. So, so him, and then there's a bunch of other artists from the same sort of time period. Ralph Humphrey, I always thought was really fantastic. Um, uh, Paul Feely is really great. You know, there's a there's a bunch of these um, there's a bunch of these painters that I always think like, well, they're not really pure pop painters, and not really pure sort of abstract painters. There's something in between. They float like in this yeah, yeah. in this kind of interesting. Um, 
area and that um, and the work dates from around the same time as there's that explosion in you know media installation and mm -hmm. time-based stuff and um, and I always I always think about that period like well that's the that's the moment when um, uh, you know reviewers and critics would instead of saying like this show of paintings is a great show of paintings and this painter is a good painter that so when they started saying this artist is using painting right. or this artist is using this and that that moment has been really interesting mm -hmm. in a kind of ongoing way for me like yeah. I go back to that um, I guess is a way of thinking about what painting can do you know and its role as your signature as an artist in a way like the way that you get your ideas across oh this artist is using painting as yeah. opposed to you know yeah this person is a painter a yeah. journeyman or something right or, um, or that you would have to die before people started talking about art yeah yeah <laughs> I love that the painter's painter that I the idea of like certain painters are more painters than other painters yeah, they're like meta painters. Right, right. No, I know when when I was here for the opening, I got to see that Myron Stout show that was mm -hmm. uptown. That's like the, you know, he's the most painter's painter. Painter, painter. yeah. You know, ever. Easels and you, that's what you think in your mind, like plein air, easels, like yeah. a painter's painter. Yeah, Mixing no, there's lore, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's also like, oh, you know, highly respected among other painters. Yeah. Which is sort of like the booby prize, right? Right, right. That's that's what that's like the comics comic. Yeah. Who's not like you know? Nobody thinks he's funny except yeah, other comedians. Yeah. No, he's not selling stuff out, or you know. But it's just they all love him because yeah. yeah. So whenever you well, actually, let's go back to where you grew up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Amherst, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. on um, pretty much on the campus of Amherst College. My dad was a football coach there for like thirty years. Wow. Um, so sports were big in your life, or they were there. Yeah, we, our house was a, like a faculty house in between the football field and the and the gymnasium. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I did some sports. I sucked. I was really it bad. Wasn't your thing. Um, I was okay at swimming, mm -hmm. but it was sort of like that. You know, that's what there was to to do. But he was actually kind of an unusual guy. He would have team meetings in the in the uh, museum on campus. Wow. And he had a kind of a small. <laughs> odd painting collection, um, which included a lot of work by this one guy named Lee Hershey, who had started the art department at Williams College. Mm -hmm. um, and the guy did, um, the guy was, a, was a, a, a Yale student under Albers back, way back when Albers first got to New Haven. So he had hard-edged geometric painting, and then he also later on did photorealistic painting, and then he did these sort of California cool sculptures. So I kind of grew up thinking like, oh, if you're an artist, you're supposed to be able to do like all of it, right? like the range, you mm -hmm. know? Um, well, how did he get the coaching? He pl well, he played football. He played for the Giants for a couple of years. Oh, really? He played for uh, the Canadian Montreal Alouettes for a few years. Mm -hmm. He played um, when he was, in the, he was in World War II, um, and he played for the Third Army. They used to play in the Olympic Stadium. Wow. So he went from, you know, from playing to... Uh, to coaching. Yeah. And then just got that gig and settled there. 30 years, you said? Yeah, he was at Amherst for like 30 years. He did a year at Cornell, mm -hmm. and he did a year at, um, or a year or two at Williams before that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, long, a long gig for a coach. So is it advantageous? Is it um, irritating to have a father as a coach? <laughs> Does he bring the coaching mentality to your upbringing, or what, was um, the house full of art and arts and creativity, or you know? How well, I've got a lot. I mean, I've got six siblings, okay. so everybody had you know it was their diffused. own yeah. thing. It was diffused a little bit, and I'm like the fifth of seven, mm -hmm. so I lucked out, yeah. you know, um, that way. No, I th he was he was supportive of it. He valued it. You know, he was into like ballet and opera. Um, um, I remember a stretch where where we had to sit on the couch and listen to the Texaco Opera radio broadcast on wow. Sundays. That yeah. was, you know, that was odd. Uh, but he was really he was interested in art. Mm -hmm. You know, he actually um, he had a catalog of a Clifford Still show that was at the Albright Knox mm -hmm. when Still was alive, um, and he had gone up for the opening. He wanted to meet this guy. He'd seen painting somewhere and wanted to meet him. I thought that was pretty interesting. And he saw, I guess he saw those paintings in person, I would imagine, right? Yeah. Because they're pretty 
Yeah, they're pretty awesome. You know, they hit you. They're huge. Yeah. yeah. I still haven't been to the museum, but I really want to go to his museum. To the, oh, the one in Denver. Yeah. Yeah, I want to see, I would, I'd like to see that too. Yeah, I need to go there. I remember going, visiting San Francisco Museum of Modern Art when I was really young, and there was a room of those. Yeah. For some reason, when, for me, when I was young, a giant abstract painting had big effect on me. Me too. And like, yes. I just thought, what? And yes, that's amazing. Like, yeah. that someone would make a canvas that's like 20 feet long and just paint some color on it. Seemed really profound. Yeah. And exotic. Yeah, the huh factor yeah. was really high. Yeah. No, I know. I think he gave a bunch of paintings to the San Francisco Museum, to the Albright Knox, mm-hmm. and, to the, and to the Met. And I heard a rumor somewhere that um, there's a requirement in the bequest that they have them up all the time. Mm-hmm. And that, at least at the Albright Knox, they've built walls in front of them so that they're technically up. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't in the fine print. You didn't think that was possible. He, he didn't think you to must do not that. Pa- build walls in front of them and they still hang. In the- yeah. Yeah, well, that's, they're up. That's pretty creative of the museum. Yeah. <laughs> I think there had to be a way to get around it. I mean, he, he, apparently he was a real uh, crank. I used to do, there's some statement of his that I used to bring up when I, would, you know, when I was talking to students or, or giving a talk. Um, he says something like, you know, do not, under, do not underestimate the power of my work for life or for death if they are misused. It's like the, the painting is going to jump on the wall and kill you if you yeah. don't like, respect it enough. And I, um, I think when I started out, there was this idea that you know this is a genre, this abstract painting genre is a genre that's run its course and yeah. is uh, compromised in all kinds of ways. Right. You know, it can't be, it can't carry the kind of utopian thing because it's so specifically Western and mm-hmm. so specifically like a macho um, tradition and the ways in which they talked about abstract expressionism were so daffy. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that, I think that I got into it thinking I have to find a way around this problem. Like I want to be involved in this thing, um, and the most, um, the most sort of like disgusting, hated uh, part of that genre was like sort of late fat color field painting. Mm-hmm. You know, when the when the flex gel comes out. Yeah. Um, and so the first works I showed, these foam paintings, were sort of my versions of those. I thought, go to the belly of the beast, mm-hmm. the thing that's most reviled, you know, yeah. and then work from, from there, you know. Well, was that, were you interested in abstract work back when you first started? I mean, when did you first start getting into the act of making art? Well, I went to art, like art school, I guess. Or even before, I mean, in high school, were you interested in art? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it was always this, you know, I think it started like, oh, I could, like, there'd be one kid in your class in fourth grade that could draw, like, um, an elephant charging at you, mm-hmm. you know, with the tusks up and stuff, yeah. but that was the only thing that he could draw. Right. But he would, you know, and he charged kids like a quarter with, with yeah, the yeah. elephant right. that charges straight at you, or the dragster, or whatever mm-hmm. it was. Um, but it was just, it was always something that uh, that I was interested in. I had, the, the college had, like, a kindergarten um, for faculty, student, you know, faculty's kids. Uh, which was right next to their art museum. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I would wait at the, after kindergarten, I would wait in the museum for my mother to come and pick me up, you know, to, to bring me home. And they had, um, they had this painting, this uh, Albert Pinkham Ryder painting that would mm-hmm. be up on the wall for six months and then down for six months um, that I used to go, and, you know, for 18 years I would go and look at this little uh, marine painting, you know, mm-hmm. like a boat and the moon and everything. And um, the, the, the first show I did in New York, my dealer at the time, uh, this guy Jamie Wolfe, got me tickets to the Rider Retrospective uh, in Washington. And I went, um, you know, to the preview. And um, it was like, you know, I'd been, back then, like, monographs were atrocious, like black and white. You could never really tell what something looked like unless you actually went and, and saw it. And yeah. those paintings are so fucked up. They're so... They're painted with like shoe polish, and um, so they're all falling apart. So it was the last time they were ever going to all be together, and it was great. I got to see them all. You know, things I'd seen in bleary illustrations. Um, they were up, and they really did it up. They put like the potted palms. They had a string quartet playing. It was like it was like a nineteen, you know, eighteen ninety exhibition. Yeah. 
Um, but the little painting I'd been looking at, you know, that more or less inspired me wasn't up in the exhibition. And it was billed as being like every single thing the guy ever made. And then there was a room of sort of the conservation stuff with x-rays and why they're so screwed up. And then there was a room of forgeries. Mm-hmm. It turns out he's the most forged 19th century oh, American really? artist. Yeah. So where, did you see a forged one? That's where the painting was. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you know, so, so that's you my... So you a little something about that. Yeah, that's <laughs> my source, is the forged... <laughs> the forged one. Writer. It still had the impact. Yeah, total, yeah. really good forgery. Yeah. Really beautiful. So you decided, I'm going to go to art school. Yeah. And where did you go, where did you go to I went to uh, Boston University for four years, learned how to draw noses and uh, anatomy and stuff That's like good, that. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, strange school, and then I went to, I did the Yale Norfolk, uh, you know, program they have for, for juniors. Yeah, I noticed you, you did that, it was in 80, early 80s, right? Yeah, 82 or 83. When did they start like that? that program? I don't know. It must go back. That's amazing. Forever. It's yeah. their, like that's their AAA team. Right. The farm. Know? The farm system. The farm league. Was it um, art and music when you were there? Yeah, but you know we, how it's we, like the split. Yeah, we we never. I mean, we go to the concerts, and actually, there was a crazy thing that happened. I remember. Um, I'm going to blank on the name. Who was the composer? There's like a there's like a Gust. He's close to Gustin. There's a Gustin portrait of him. It's not Cage. It's the other. Um, Morton Feldman. Okay. So Morton, they invite Morton Feldman to come, not for the music program, but for mm-hmm. the art program. For the art, yeah. And um, he gives this talk. There's four or five speakers over the course of the summer. He gives this talk about um, that starts off like he recognizes, like, okay, issues of, of quality are no longer, you know, of concern to us. That like art has changed, and you know, this is kind of like the beginning of the postmodern moment or something. Um, and he's doing this talk and he's getting sort of progressively upset and confused and he's talking about like this Jasper Jones drawing he owns and how like he knows that it's wrong of him to think about it in terms of how beautiful it is and he knows that it's part of how it's constructed that keeps him engaged with it but that that's wrong mm-hmm. and that he's supposed to be thinking about what it refers to and what context it fits in and all of this. And then he has this like heart attack and falls down. She's right there. Yeah. Um, and they shush us all out of the room and we're all freaked out. And, yeah. um, and there's like a concert scheduled for the next day. And he's at the, con- you know, a piano piece that he's written. And he's there and he's perfectly fine. And he does, you know, we sit there listening and it's um, complicated music. And, yeah. you know, we're whatever, 20 years old or 18 years old or something like, what's this? It was a giant scam. It's this fantastic scam. Oh, like, really? It was yeah. performance? Yeah. To, to make us all think like yeah. this issue was really, uh, you know. God, that would never happen important. today. <laughs> no, well, I don't know. I wouldn't because right? he's not around. I yeah, guess. yeah. But I mean, even that kind of, like, we're just going to scare the bejesus out of these people. You know, right. Just to, like, yeah, no, it doesn't work. That like way. a teaching point, you know, like I'll just fake a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> that would uh, not go well on your student evaluations. No, it has to be more <laughs> subtle. So was that, um, did you have some pretty good teachers and experiences there that made you want to continue further? Or were you already on the path of like, this is what I want to do? I was pretty sure that yeah. it was what I wanted to do. But it was also like, and I, um, it was, it was also like, it, at the time it felt like, oh, if you make this decision, I'm going to art school and maybe an artist. It wasn't like I'm going to have a career as an artist. It meant right. I'm going to opt out of having careers, right? you know? I'm so, going outside of the system. Yeah, I'm going to be outside yeah. of it. So, um, so it's a, it was a kind of a it was less of a proactive decision, I think. You know. Yeah, it's more reactive. Yeah, I'm going to stay out of this. Yeah, I didn't. It was too scary. Yeah, and, and the desk job yeah. reality. Yeah, that's changed too, right? Uh, yeah, it seems way more bureaucratic now. And and people go for professional. They feel like they're going to teach or have their career. Yeah, know, and expect it which is a little different than it used to be. Yeah, it's, it's changed some. Yeah. So, um, and then you went to graduate school after that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I went straight through. You went to Yale back mm-hmm. in, what, what year did you start there? Was there 83 to 85? Mm-hmm. And that was what we referred to when I was there as the old guard. <laughs> no, that's flattering. <laughs> no, I mean the stu- uh, the, uh, the teachers, like the system. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The old, you Oh, know, I thought you meant us. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, it was a, a definite, definite admiration for a lot of people 
Yeah, we had a great. It, it was the year that time. The, my class and the particularly the class after mine. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that were first years when I was second year. It was like amazing yeah. uh, group of people, um, and really intense. But yeah, the faculty um, had been there for a stretch. Um, really interesting uh, range, but I think it was it was. Um, you know, I think this is true. I, I direct the graduate program at Cornell now, so mm -hmm. I have this kind of, you know, um, and I think the intensity of the experience at Yale had a lot to do with wanting to, to do this. Um, and also this kind of suspicious feeling that as much as people will talk about like Hal Arts and Baldessari or Michael Craig Martin and uh, Goldsmiths and uh, Yale and Albers, that mm -hmm. it's really like, it's almost always the group of students you know, gain the reputation for yeah. the place. It's yeah. the chemistry between them and how much they're like willing to get involved with, with one another. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so that's, that, that was my experience there. That was great. That was um, huge, but I have a, I think without it, God knows what would have happened. Yeah, and that community probably, when you moved, did you go straight to the city after that? Yeah, left left New Haven, and then about a year later, a lot of the people that I that I knew well, um, you know, graduated and, and came in, and we were like a real, you know, we were really supportive. We would do find jobs, you know, house painting gigs and yeah. construction gigs, and go to to one another's studios and recommend one. You know, if somebody had a curator or somebody coming by, you'd say, "You got to go see my friend." Mm -hmm. um, drank too much and, you know, helped one another through the, the nervous thing of, yeah. you know, how do you get closer to actually being involved in this thing? Acclimating to the whole... Yeah, where the where did you move? Where was your first spot? I was in Brooklyn for a while. Um, I was in a couple of different places in Brooklyn. Um, the, the last one was like Union and Fourth. Mm -hmm. and a, um, North and Fourth or South? God, it's a long time ago. It was right on the edge of the Gowanus. Oh, so it's in fact, the building was like tilting. Oh, okay. You were so good. yeah. So. Um, and then moved to I moved to Delancey, and then a bunch of friends of mine were on Ludlow, mm -hmm. like around the corner. Um, um, late eighties, right? Yeah, late eighties. Different vibe. Eighty six, eighty seven. No, I know pre Max Fish, well, like. Yeah. yeah that's I don't know pre-Max Fish. Yeah, there's a, pre, there's a the, pre-Max Fish. That was like the only spot whenever I first you know, yeah. started hanging out. It was like... No, it was the era of like those um, China y Latina places with the, mm -hmm. with the like prison window where you'd order and then like put your money in the slot and they'd... Mm -hmm. Or they'd, you know, you'd go in and sit down and they'd send somebody out because they didn't actually make food there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love those. You can get, you know, fried rice or you can get like... Chicharrones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So or both. Yeah, like, together both at the same time. Yeah, the hybrid menu. Yeah, joints. Those aren't around as much. Yeah, it was nice, few. and it wasn't like it was Lower East Side was not the East Village. It was like two different, you know, yeah. sort of things. Um, but it was good. There, there had been like a stock market crash in whatever year '89 or something like mm -hmm. that, and a ton of galleries closed and then a ton of spaces opened up and didn't seem to have to name themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, is this a project space? Is it a gallery? Is it what? And, it, and um, my sense was that there had been a really rigid hierarchy. Like, these are the galleries you could expect to show in if you're starting and then you go to this level and then this level. And it seemed like the, um, it seemed like that ended, you know, like yeah. the levels really changed. The opportunities sort of increased. But you would work your way up, hypothetically. I think in the old days you would work your way up, and then it was kind of like all bets were off after that. Yeah. You know, um, back then. Was it, um, does it feel similar? Because, I mean, you've been through a cycle more than I have, I think, as far as that decade is concerned. It's like adapting to the market and to the galleries and to a cycle of ups and downs. Does, does it feel cyclical? You know what I mean? Like this. oh, like oh no, where it's all going to hell. Oh, it's back. It's yeah, all. like that kind of. Um, I guess a little, you know. Closings and to some openings. degree. Yeah. I think the fact that it's gone so global has sort of changed it fundamentally. Yeah, that's, you know? that's true. Yeah. And also, I think um, outside of the sort of the the market thing, there's so many um, there's so many sort of exhibition opportunities. There's mm -hmm. so many. It's so much bigger. Yeah. Um, the 
you know, more recently, what I keep thinking about is this kind of profound change between the affordability of living in a city and sort of getting a, a sense of community because people are around the corner. I feel like, oh, I really lucked out timing wise. Yeah. And the sort of explosion of these um, residencies and also of how bureaucratic that process is yeah. and how much it reinforces the kind of um, making as project, like, oh, I'm going to do this, like, please accept me into your residency and I'm going to make this while I'm there. Right. And it... Um, That's true. It's yeah. real target-driven. It's like, you will come here and accomplish this, this, and this. You right. know, like you or at least you out. say you will. Yeah, something. like, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Make yeah. And I totally get, like, that's how you get it. You know, that's how you find... Uh, a community, yeah, but it's it's a that's a that's a big change, I think. Yeah, because I mean, it's something we talk about a lot with a lot of artists on the podcast is just how different the the real estate situation is. Because there's no more. It seems as though there's not much of a wild west anymore. You know, there's no new frontier that you can go mm. and have a cheap studio at that's yeah. that's close. I mean, you know, you can go upstate, you can go to Pennsylvania, you can go right. to, out into Jersey, but as far as in the city, it's, it's, the options aren't really. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I've been I've been out for fifteen years, so yeah, it's it's past that. For Was me. is teaching for you giving you sort of freedom in a way that you feel like you can? Has it changed your work in a, in in a way that maybe if you were here going through? Like all those tumultuous changes in real estate and all that stuff, is there certain kind of um, freedom or not? I don't want to say relaxation in the work, but mm -hmm. a, an ability to just like slow things down and make things the way you want to make them. You know, do you feel like there might yeah, be? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, if it's if it's slowed down, it's slowed down because you know, family and mm -hmm. job and the administration thing and all that. I know that I got. I know that there was a big shift when when my kids were first born. It was like, oh, oh yeah. wait, I'm not um, I'm not doing this like navel gazing thing in this when I have time in the studio anymore. Yeah. You know, and I was lucky. I had a nice you know six or seven year stretch of being able to wake up and go to the studio. Mm -hmm. Teaching for me started. Um, I did adjuncting for about ten years here. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, it was like, oh, I should have something that isn't like the bar, the studio, or like my shrink. Yeah. Like I should have a fourth right. um, thing. Um, so the first change was having kids and being much more like, oh, I'm going in and doing this. And um, more recently, like maybe the last eight or 10 years, I've gotten really good at, um, this sounds dopey maybe, I got really, I walk to work. Mm -hmm. It's about like a 25 minute walk. And I got really good at thinking the same thing like over and over and over again so that when I do carve out time for a deadline or for a you know um, exhibition coming up or something like that it's um, it's like I've thought it it's like I feel like I got I took orders or something you know it's like heads it's basically you're just able to concentrate that time allows you to to just think yeah, it's like a, it, of... it made it like I'm in the studio on my walk or right. something yeah so which is important and you, as you know when you have a family like when things like that change in your life it's the one luxury that you kind of need as an artist is just time to sit there and think yeah and people outside of the profession <laughs> that sounds really strange you know what i mean it sounds weird that you would just need to go somewhere sit in a cube and think yeah and you can't do it when you're on the go you can't think think about it when you're dropping yeah. someone off or, or you know like that time is so important to the role of making work that I, I think you know you really have to when when time when you get busy you really have to carve that out for yourself or you suffer you yeah know? you find a you find some like like place to do it well plus <clears throat> I mean I don't carry a cell phone mm -hmm. you know which I know is insane my kids think it's insane no, it's really sane um, <laughs> but like I can't you know there's so much distraction and um, I guess three or four years ago my daughter handed me the laptop and said I signed you up for Facebook <laughs> um, and at the time I was like I'm not doing that. and you're but on there though you're active I'm on there like you know way too much honestly but all those people that I'd known in the city that community it turned out they were all you know there yeah um, 
and I met a bunch of people, like a bunch of people in that show that Elizabeth did, mm -hmm. you know, these people that I'd been really impressed by their work and jealous of, you know, in the late 80s, like they were there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I really, you know, I, so I really enjoy that. It's like a sort of that, um, a little bit of that community plus, um, I don't know, this, um, I can post some of that stuff, you know, like the Chuck Jones stuff or, mm -hmm. or um, just the kind of wide range of visual culture stuff that's interesting to me, like people find it amusing, so. Yeah, and it's, it kind of, I would imagine too, if you're outside the city, because you've been outside the city for a while, and you know, there is a sense of community that you can develop through that, of just yeah. talking to people and feeling like, oh yeah, there's other people out here thinking about similar things or interested mm. in what I'm looking at. And you know, when you hang a show, you're there for the opening, you might be there one or two days or whatever, but you're really not, you know what I mean? The work's on its own. It's, yeah. it's communicating by itself, unless you're one of those creepy people just stand next to your paintings the whole time, <laughs> wanting, hey, you want to talk about this? <laughs> Which no one really does that, I hope, yeah. you know. So it's, it's kind of nice in the sense that you can, you know, have a dialogue, a different kind of dialogue, and still connect with people. I think when it gets to, for me, when I get on there and just start reading story after story, and the feed becomes curated, and it's an endless cycle of, you know, just that noise, right. that, that becomes distraction. Yeah. Or just a time suck. Like, it just takes you away from being productive. Yeah. No, well, God, it can, be, it can totally be a time suck. Also, all the, you know, the political events, yeah. it was like, oh, it's not funny time now, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I've been, I've been sort of, and things happen so quick. There's been so much that's happened so fast and it's such a, um, it's such a force for organizing, you know, um, like the March in Washington, the March mm -hmm. here in the city, all of these sort of actions, it, it you know, it seems like, um, it's got this kind of really great utility, you know? Yeah. Well, to transition to that, the work downstairs has the feeling of a kind of decay or deterioration or struggle to it with the palette and the way that the background is put in with this sort of wash and these kind of mountain dripping, I don't know, it has that feeling. And then you have, you still have the, the text on there, which is almost like, a lot of the, the words seem like struggle or mm -hmm. some sort of like rejection of something. But at the same time, there's an iconic relationship to humor and cartooning. So the, 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 I feel like humor is important. After every big event that seems like a negative to me, whether it's, you know, living through certain events in the city that have been horrible, you know, like mm -hmm. tragic, whatever happens, I feel like comedy is such an important has a, such an important role in, in healing or coming to terms with things. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about your relationship with your work, like what relationship comedy has to the work and how it changes within, you know, different environments socially and, and, and just who you're showing with and mm -hmm. how you feel about comedy or, or kind of humor in your work. I guess more humor. It's than kind comedy. of in the, it's, uh, I always think about it in terms of like the comic as mm -hmm. a kind of like structural form. And I, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at cartoons and at early silent film and, you know, reading about jokes and reading sort of theory of comedy and stuff like that. Um, in, the, in the very beginning, it was like, um, it was sort of based on a recognition of, of ways in which, um, painting can function, you know, mm -hmm. the, you know, sort of uh, visual double meanings and sort of uh, structural ways it works structurally and things like that. Um, I think over time it becomes like, well, that's where, that's the area I operate in, mm -hmm. you know, like that's my area. You know, one problem with abstraction is, is this kind of like reputation for like hyper seriousness, you yeah. know? The formal issues becoming the yeah. That, well, what's content. a means and ends problem? Like yeah. you know, there's there's um, to the degree that you're a plumber, people keep admiring the plumbing rather right. than like washing their hands or taking mm -hmm. a shower or whatever. Um, so humor seemed to me to be a really valuable thing at um, you know in the beginning at a moment when it seemed like 
abstraction was not viable. And it wasn't, and also um, at a time when almost anything that was, a, that was uh, referenced as humor would automatically be called um, irony. And it seemed really important to make a distinction between humor as a means and irony as a kind of like, I don't know, environment or something. Um, um, so with, with this show, I, I guess I had been real, like everybody else in the, you know, or almost everybody else, or everybody but what, 26% of the voting population or whatever it was. You know, it, yeah. was, it was a rough time. And so I sort of thought about those, uh, I thought about the, the um, you know, the words and the word paintings in this show, they're not actually words. They're, um, technically they're called ejaculations. Mm -hmm. um, like, ah, or gack, or whatever, that they're sort of, exp that they're expressions. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and the way that they're compositionally structured, I meant for them to like, be sign-like, you know, like a placard, like somebody would um, carry. Yeah. Um, but that the protest would just be the expression of disgust or the expression of the outrage just because of the sense of, I don't know, sort of collapse, you know, mm -hmm. what, of, of the normalization of this thing that seems so completely anti-constitutional and anti, um, that's so extreme. Yeah. So I, I really, um, I really, that process of walking back, you know, walking to, to work and back, my studio's at work, it was really like I talked myself into what the show was going to be and then um, did it. Mm -hmm. it's, a de it's a departure for me. I mean, it's, um, it's sort of its own thing. It, it feels different than, than a lot of earlier um, work and the, and the sort of cycle of... Um, of the the drip paintings with the kind of mopped fields, I really thought I want to make it. I want to make a kind of an image of a really dark place, yeah. you know, a kind of nighttime um, place, and and push this image I'd used in my work really since the the early '90s. This you know, sort of image of the of the of the drip, like oh my god, mm -hmm. you know, it's like an image of accident or image of entropy or something like that um, in a way that the what the figure ground thing would do would would be to simultaneously suggest this kind of erasure going on but where the thing that's erasing is the thing that's spacious right. rather than the empty space and that the empty space would be a kind of uh, horizon landscape and then I could calculate the size and sort of aspect ratio of the paintings to mm -hmm. to make a painting exhibition that was that felt like a freeze you know that right. you're in the middle of it or you're in the middle of a bucket of pain or something like that, mm -hmm. but that it was a, a place. Well, one thing that's really interesting about these works that I was thinking about is that change in the background to the sort of mopped, or you know, I think you described it as that, right? A kind of mm -hmm. mopped sort of Yeah, because I used a mop, that's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's, it's physical, yeah. and what it did for me when I was looking at the paintings was it, it converted those... Um, those the text which usually seems more in line for me as like a stylized cartoony mm -hmm. representation of a guttural reaction to a more physical reaction because the background's physical mm -hmm. so you change the background from this flat color to a stylized sort of plane to a more physical you know there's always a struggle or an action with the physical and then that makes the the text seem more action-based or guttural or physical in yeah. its reaction, which like I thought coming was... coming at you or yeah, something. It's, it feels more like, you know, internal and, and you know, less like a depiction of those words and more of like an actual, you know, punch someone in the stomach and you're like, ah, you know, it comes out of that physical nature of the background of the painting. Yeah, the fields, I mean, it's, it's for years I wanted... I, I'd wanted, you know, I've been looking at these Miro paintings forever and ever and ever. Um, and uh, I'd tried, there was, a, there was a group of these uh, sort of star paintings I'd done about mm -hmm. 10 years ago with the kind of washy grounds yeah. and there was some drawings I'd done a long, long time ago. I'd always, I, this idea, this kind of inflected um, field that, mm -hmm. that things grow out of always seemed to me to be like, oh, you would need that kind of space to have timing, like gag timing. Mm -hmm. And um, have always been way too anally retentive to like tolerate it. Like that's always the first coat 
And then it's like, no, 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 no. Okay. Got to cover that. Let's knuckle down, you know? Um, and I guess the, uh, in, in painting those grounds this time around, I, you know, the, the word in my mind was like, make it look desultory, like make it look like, all right, yeah, you know, cover it up. Like, you know, the, the Miro that's at, um, that's at MoMA called birth of the world. Mm -hmm. It's big vertical. It's really like, it's like he, he, uh, he rabbit skin glued like part of it and not part of it and it's bleeding in and, um, a rough around the edges. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a kind of a. There's that, and there's a, a couple of paintings from later paintings from like the mid '50s, that, you know, that I kept thinking about in terms of putting this together, you know, mm -hmm. in my mind. Do you often look back at certain painters? I think a lot of people do that. Look back at certain moves that yeah, all painters the time. make, and you're like, oh, that. Yeah, like a Trekkie fan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like it's okay to do this. They did it, and I love what they do. You know, like yeah. I do that. Or all how the time. does this work? You know, how, this is working on me. How you know what yeah. part of it's? What's the mechanics of mm -hmm. this? Yeah, it's got. I mean, in the in the more distant past, it was ridiculous. There was like a there was like a show in '93 where I like stole the sizes of the Barnett Newman, <laughs> Who's Afraid of Red, Yellow, and Blue uh -huh. paintings. There was a show where I, the first, one of the first shows I did with Elizabeth, there was three Miro, mural painting. That was this a crazy story. Um, in 1961, which is the year I was born, he was invited to be in the Carnegie International, mm -hmm. Carnegie show. Um, and the other art, a lot of the other artists in the show were these kind of color, American color field painters. Mm -hmm. There's a Motherwell in the show, there's a Gottlieb in the show. And he did these three huge and totally sort of empty like 120 by uh, 102 by 120 inch um, paintings are actually hanging up in a lobby in Midtown um, now and mm -hmm. one is like what is it one is orange one is green and one is red there's like a two dots and a line in one you know they're really really stripped down and spare and lean mm -hmm. and in my mind it was like he was pissed mm -hmm. that this thing he had invented in like you know the, those Eneric paintings in the 20s mm -hmm. had been like understood and taken in and by the time that you know that that these American artists had developed this kind of color field language out of Barnett Newman out of uh, um, that it was like he had, so he was going to make these giant paintings that were super stripped down and put them in this show in, in the states and everybody would have to go like okay yeah you know we you did it. it yeah we get it <laughs> and I had this idea that I, I that it would be perverse of me to steal them back mm-hmm and I also like the idea that, like, oh, the way you, the way you, um, that the aspect ratio of a painting is really meaningful. Like, it's a, it's, it's like a Ouija board or it's ghosting or something like mm -hmm. that. So it's like I, a separate dialogue with the past in a way too. Yeah. Of like that. Yeah, and that also that that's a way of. Um, you know, there's another thing that I've been doing. I've done a few of these uh, museum exhibitions where I'll use. Um, They'll hang work from museum collections mm -hmm. on top of a mural and curate like music to yeah. be playing in the space. The idea is always like um, make this stuff available. Get the get the sort of veils of like oh this is about these issues or this comes from its time in this way. Like try to find a way to um, to make the work um, experientially immediate, you know, um, to the viewer. Mm -hmm. To, to sort of get rid of the, the it's a text or it's a sacred cow thing out of the way that, mm -hmm. that um, and also to kind of a, to redress like I'd done one of them one of these shows was at the uh, museum at Cornell and they had this beautiful Nick Krushenik painting in the oh. collection which I don't know if it had ever been shown um, and speaking of overlooked <clears throat> yeah like so second exactly. tier pop people yeah so they also have a they also have um, a set of the Warhol um, Most Wanted Men, and the guy looks to the right, you know, mm -hmm. like yeah. turn to the side. So I hung, you know, I had a I had a room upstairs for drawings and prints, and a room downstairs and two murals and like soul jazz music, organ music upstairs, and sort of heavy psych music downstairs for <laughs> paintings and sculptures. And I hung the uh, the Warhol like right next to the Krushenik, so that the guy was looking. The Warhol guy was looking at the Krushenik, like, mm -hmm. not that... What was the Krushenik image? It was early. It was like 67. Uh -huh. It was this big spiral coming, you know, up the center. Yeah. Um, 
and kind of thick, you know, mm -hmm. not a not a lean one. And yeah. obviously, it had a painting um, underneath it. He made a new painting on yeah. top. You could tell. Um, and um, so I really wanted it to be like, here's the signal, you know, look at this. Yeah. This, should, this needs looking at. Um, Even Warhol's looking at it. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which of course he, you know, if he was still alive, he, he would. Yeah. That's a pretty great collection you had, by the way, to choose from there. What's that? Yeah, oh, that's a pretty great collection to choose from there. The yeah, they, they have really great stuff. Yeah. They also have the thing that all university museums have, which is like the crazy embarrassing stuff, because mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff is alumni. And uh, that's part of the fun of doing these projects is that you get to dig around of the stuff that, like they had this amazing Dan Christensen painting they'd been given in like 1968 or 69. Mm -hmm. That's huge, you know, like 14 feet wide or something. Yeah. And they, um, it was on a tube. They had never restretched it. They still had the stretcher. They'd never shown it. He's one of these artists that was like um, too sort of process oriented to be thought of as a color field person mm -hmm. and too kind of involved with like that kind of field idea to be thought of as a kind of straight process material, yeah. you know, oriented artist. So he was in the cracks, you know. Yeah. So that show, that was also, in the, I put that in the show too, you know, and put like a little Barnett Newman, like plastic multiple, like six inches away from it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, fun. it's a really fun part of, you know. Yeah. Like, Curating is fun. I mean, you're kind of making your own little stew with all these, you yeah. know, ingredients that you can just really play around with. Yeah. How the work is seen and the relationships. And yeah, they should a, have, more museums should have artists curating shows in the museum. I, I know, they're always good. I remember the, the Chuck Close did the portrait show mm -hmm. at MoMA way, way back. There's also this, which sounds, this is going to sound terrible. Um, the first time I did this was at the MMK in Frankfurt, and I did it because uh, the dealer I'd worked with, the German, uh, Rolf Ricke I'd worked yeah. with for a long, long time, he sold his collection to the MMK and two other museums, one in um, St. Gallen and, um, and a third one. And um, so they were showing, they were re-showing the museum's collection with the new acquisitions. And he and I had always talked about my doing a, a, a wall painting and had never really had an opportunity. And um, well, I'm losing track of where I was going with it. Um, well, did you combine it with something from their collection? Well, I did couldn't they? come up with a good... It was like, oh, I'll, I'll do a giant blue pretzel. That's an idea. No, uh -huh. that sucks. I'll do, you know, images yeah. from the paintings I'd been doing. And nothing was really working. And I finally... Um, and I was supposed to, like, make some gouaches and send them to, um, to Udo Kittleman, who was the director there at the time, you know. And I was like, there's nothing I can do. And I knew that collection really well. It's like an amazing pop collection. Yeah. Some, some, whoever it is that they built the museum for, this German businessman, like chocolate company owner or something, um, had bought out of studios in the early 60s, like before Americans were buying that stuff. Um, and I, I was finally so um, at a loss, I ran over to the library, you know, the art school library, pulled out uh, monographs, Xeroxed the, the paintings. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the first time I used the drip again in like 15 years. Did the drip, glued them on, and sent them. Thinking it would be like, there's no way we're going to let you touch our like treasures. Right. You know? This yeah. was like a, a wall, not yeah. like... Plus, um, well, and I, so, I, uh, so I sent them, and then Uda goes, okay, like, yeah, sure. we'll do it, <laughs> you know? So they've got, they've got like the biggest Lichtenstein brushstroke painting of all of them. They had, it was just this amazing thing. And I'm, I'm, uh, they had help for me to do it. I went over, I figured out how to, you know, digitally enlarge these drip images and how to get the paint over there and all that. And um, we're four or five days in and he's like, he comes down and he's like, oh, we need a title. And I'm like, oh, well, I'd been reading this book about the Velvet Underground, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, in the hotel room, and I'm like, well, let's call it All Tomorrow's Parties, from the Velvet Song. Yeah. And he's like, that's a good idea. And he goes upstairs, and he comes back down two hours later, and he says, guess who I just got off the phone with? And I said, who? And he said, Lou, Lou Reed. Reed. <laughs> and if you want, Lou says it's fine to play that album in the space. They're not going to charge us any, you know, money. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. Let's, like, let's play, because it's Warhol yeah. produced it, right? Perfect. So it's another, it's another piece. 
And then I, I go back, I finish working, and I go back and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, am I a curator now? Or am mm-hmm. I, like, you know, the mural is there. And I started thinking like, oh, this is like collage. Like, the rule of collage is, like, you make the ground, right? Like, Picasso makes the ground, mm-hmm. and he can cut up a piece of newspaper and glue it on the ground, and then that newspaper is his. Yeah. Right? So if I hang, like, the, a Warhol, like, car crash disaster on my mural, then, like, that whole room is mine. Yeah. Like, that's my work. Which, that was, like, you know, the power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that felt really good. So did it come together, and it was what you thought it was good? I mean... It was fantastic. Yeah. It was... The, the, the only hiccup was uh, there was this beautiful Judd. It was all stuff from... It was all sort of pop-era stuff in this big room. And they had this beautiful, huge floor Judd that was, mm-hmm. like... Um, kind of tur- gray turquoise color, multiple frames that, go, that are arranged that yeah. I really wanted, you know, in the middle of the space. And um, the, the mural was like pink and sort of salmon. And it was the most horrifically ugly combination you've ever seen mm-hmm. in your life. And I was like, no, we can't do that at all. But they had done, a, um, they'd done an exhibition of Elaine Sturdivant like a year or two before and had uh-huh. some work in the collection. And she had gotten the original silk screens for the flower paintings from Warhol. Yeah and made a huge one, you know, like an eight by eight foot one. And she had also done a version of um, Felix Gonzalez Torres's piece where the guy dances on the platform yeah, that has yeah. a light bulb on it. Yeah. And so rather than having the Judd, we put a lane, you know, it was like a way to bring the whole thing sort of closer up to date. And I, I knew Felix a little bit from the old days, yeah. like not well, but he's somebody whose work I really admire. Right. So to have Elaine's version of his piece and also just have the Germans walking around at the opening and mm-hmm. looking at the go-go dancer dude. Who, <laughs> and he's listening to music on, it's part of the pieces, he's listening on a, uh, what do you call it? A, a discman, right? Yeah, discman. Yeah. So we can't hear what he's hearing. And then we have our music in the space. That's mm-hmm. really nice. It was complicated. Yeah. And the music thing was interesting because it was like, it puts you in the present tense, you know? Yeah. Like when the song's playing. Mm-hmm. So... Um, People always seem so anxious to not be in the present tense when they're looking at art, right. because it's such a particularly painting, because it's such a has so much to do with retrospection, like mm-hmm. this got done in this date, or this was this artist's interpretation of that scene, or yeah, like you're the, being transposed to that yeah. moment when it's happening, not right now, not now, yeah. When when I was think, well, the author, the point of the authorship is for the experience, like the art is what happens between the painting, like. The world wants to think of painting as a noun, mm-hmm. but really it's a verb. verb yeah. The challenge is to make it be a verb. Right. You know? so. Yeah. Well, what do you listen to in the studio, speaking of music? Are you a music fan in the studio? or? Um, yeah. I Silence? Am. No, I, I listen to a lot of... I have... Um, is it the vinyl collection you were talking about? No, I do the vinyl at home, but I listen to the same stuff in, this, in the studio. Um, a lot of soul jazz stuff uh-huh. and then um, there's all these bands from like between 68 and sort of 72 it's like um, that are some combination of like um, psychedelic and electric like the spectrum of psychedelic to electric blues uh-huh. uh, I have this fantasy that there was kind of like a worldwide hunt for heavy mm-hmm. that Sabbath finally like found it right um, but before that but before that and a lot of them turn it's like Oh, the second album is the Prague album because they got too good, right. and it's it's horrible. But the first one, mm-hmm. they're still fumbly enough that they're actually really like working it through, and they've yeah. got the songs they've been working on. So there's a lot of those bands, and they're also um, it's a, like an international search. There's like South American bands, German bands, you know. What are some of the names of this, some of those bands? There's a band called Toad that's uh-huh. from, I think, Switzerland, uh, Captain Beyond, mm-hmm. somewhere down south. Um, the, the ones that people know, Iron Butterfly people know. Yeah. Um, uh, what is it? Vanilla something, Vanilla. It's a New York band. Um, there's a, you know, there's a bunch. Yeah. So it's kind of like psych. Yeah, it's like heavy psych. Heavy psych. Yeah. And then soul jazz? Yeah, <laughs> that's the range. Like, uh, are we talking like Lonnie Smith sort of stuff? Yeah, Lonnie Smith, Jack McDuff, yeah. you know, to Nina Simone, to um, 
I could picture you painting the hot barbecue. Yes. <laughs> you would be right. And uh, what's that other? That record's really good. I'm trying to think of the other songs on that record. But he's, he's really good. Yeah, he's fantastic. And no. um, have you, did you get to see some of those guys play live? Um, no, I didn't. I never have. So Lonnie Smith with uh, Lou Donaldson. Oh, yeah? This is really great. Yeah. And uh, John Patton was one of my favorite. I have organist. a friend that saw him at some, um, um, not VA, some, some Veterans of Foreign Wars place up in this VFW. part of town. Yeah. Yeah. Is he still doing it? He's still doing it. He's you know, I saw him one of the first times I went to the Lower East Side. And um, he was playing, it was by Max Fish, probably on Orchard. It was uh, maybe on Orchard. Mm -hmm. A tiny little bar where it's just a bar, like it was a long, skinny place. Basically just a bar and stools, and, mm -hmm. and then at the back there were a couple of tables. And he was playing up on the balcony. It was wow. like a tiny balcony. Him, organ, drums, and I think guitar maybe. Mm -hmm. And um, That's fantastic. Yeah, and, so, and you know, it was like, and I had been a jazz deep, like I knew a lot about jazz. Yeah. And I said, you know, I thought to myself, is that John Patton playing? You know, because I didn't know. I just went to this place with friends. We're right. like, we're going to this place. You know, you go to an opening, and then, hey, we're going here, and then, hey, we're going here after here. This was a yeah. here after here place. Uh -huh. And then, you know, he's just up there playing. I'm like, this guy is like a blue note legend. Yeah. And he's just playing this tiny No, I know. I've got like nine records of his. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, he's great. Yeah, Understanding is a really good record. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. But the, the the most beautiful record of all records. Mm -hmm. um, it's wow, so, this is big. It's this so great big. that I wait like three months in between playing it again. Uh -huh. Is um, is the Youssef Latif Detroit record? Oh yeah. Just you know, Youssef Latif is amazing, but I don't listen to him a lot. I don't know why. I just don't. I've never. I mean, I've, I've listened to him here and there, but I've never like had his, his thing is so wide. Yeah, it it's, is. And that that record is kind of an odd one for him, you yeah. know, because he's so much part of the like the the earlier the bebop um, yeah. thing. But he he actually taught, um, I think, at UMass Amherst, where I grew yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and um, um, I saw him like three or four or five. I guess he passed away two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. But I saw him. I went home to you know Christmas with my mom and my siblings, and uh, he was coming out of a cafe, and I saw him, and it was like I was totally thrilled. You kind of like know the most thrilling thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he, there he is. There he is. Yeah. It's sad. A lot of those guys are. are yeah, know, we're, we're losing them. Like Bobby Hutcherson, I got to see him a few times. Yeah. You know, before he passed. And Elvin Jones, I saw him maybe, I think it's like a week or two before he passed away. He was, yeah. on, he was on Oxygen, and he would go out and play his set, and then we, we would go back to sort of see him back. He was, and it was in the, uh, it was the Blue Note, mm -hmm. and, you know, he would go off in the back side stage area there, and he was on Oxygen, oh but he would God. still be playing. That's crazy. And just, you would never know that he was, you know, his health was deteriorating because he was out there just... Doing what he Doing does, it. you know, banging on this drum. Wow. So yeah, we should probably trade better. playlists or something. Yeah, definitely, and yeah. Uh, trade some music. But um, so the show comes down today. Today. Yeah. And um, but how can people find your work elsewhere? Um, Google my name Google for an it. image search. Yeah. I've never done a. Uh, I don't have a, a web page or. Mm -hmm. What well, the gallery, crazy. Elizabeth D. Gallery. Yeah, Elizabeth D. Gallery. Yeah. Um, has stuff. I always think you just click the images and just you know, surf around and look. Yeah, sounds yeah. good. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking. Yeah, it was thank great you. To chat. Cool. Thanks. soundandvisionpodcast.com. The introduction, narration, and music was provided by Michael Lovett of Nazca Lines. All other music was made by Lolotone, based out of Nagoya, Japan. Sound and Vision is produced, edited, recorded, and organized by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more about my work at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening.